Hi, wise ones. It's Kimmy. It's 2023, and it's Pride Month. Fourth of July is just around the corner. Our country was founded and even named with the words United States. We were intended to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. As you all know, today we are a country that is divided. We are fractured. We are broken. I believe that like me, many of you are looking for, are yearning for hope and possibility for our country's future, that somehow, some way, we will be united. We will thrive again. So it seemed like the perfect time to go back and share one of my favorite stories we've aired on the podcast. The story is about two men, Tim and Matthew. As teenagers, Tim was a white supremacist, and Matthew was gay and living on the streets. Tim beat Matthew so bad, he nearly died. Decades later, in a chance meeting at the Museum of Tolerance, Tim and Matthew's world collided again, and they ultimately became friends. I'm not sure what the path back is to a united country, but I do know that change doesn't happen with only surrounding ourselves and engaging with people who think and act like us. It requires courage to sit with people who do not think like us or look like us or talk like us or share our faiths, our values, and our beliefs. It's not about abandoning your belief system. It's about reaching out to acknowledge our shared humanity so that somehow, some way, together, we find a path to move forward and thrive. Tim and Matthew's story is exceptional. It's exceptional in its rareness. And that is just the thing that makes it so powerful. If they can learn to see each other as human and whole and find ways to connect and communicate, perhaps we can do the same with our neighbors, our colleagues, our family, or anyone we deem as other. For a show that is about hope and possibility, I hope that Tim and Matthew's story provides you with both. She said, I think you killed him. I think you killed him. And we told her to shut up. And then we started to look at each other like, oh, my God, you know, maybe maybe we did. And we got in our cars and we we left. We left the area. We dispersed in, in several different directions and went back home to the nice leafy suburbs where the birds are singing and really, for the most part, never even spoke of it. These sort of things, when you're involved with these sort of things, you just, you don't talk about them. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolb. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. All right, Tim and Matthew, thank you for joining me on All the Wiser. Here we are recording on a Sunday afternoon. 
a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Yes, this is commitment. Yeah. So welcome, Matthew and Tim, to All the Wiser. I'm really excited to be with both of you today and want to dive into what I know is going to be a fascinating conversation. I always love to have my guests introduce themselves. So Matthew, we'll start with you. How would you introduce yourself? Let's see. (laughs) To bring sort of that, I guess, message that Tim and I collectively share that all things are possible and to give hope to those who feel that they're, they're lost and to bring strength to victims who feel that they don't have the tools to move past what has happened in their life. And Tim, how would you introduce yourself? My name's Tim. I consider myself an educator of life, not necessarily academically, but I too, as Matthew stated, seek to bring hope in the world in any way that I possibly can. I'm really curious about the shaping of both of your childhoods and would love to hear about your experiences as young boys growing up. Matthew, what was the backdrop of your childhood? I had this amazing childhood. There are seven kids. I had two amazing parents who were not derogatory and negative towards their kids. They were very much about lifting them up and having them be as creative as they were. And through that creativity to find their place in the world and their strength. But having six siblings, we had our own world that we played in and our, and the games that we did. Obviously, uh, you know, that, that was my growing up, you know, up to the age of 13. That was how I was raised. And Tim, what was your upbringing like? I am the baby of uh, four siblings, and there's about 12 years between myself and the rest of my siblings. Uh, my father was a workaholic. And my mother was a stay-at-home mom up until I was about 12, 13 years old. You know, typical middle-class upbringing. However, I do believe that once I got into middle school, I tended to rebel and I was out of control. But for, for the most part, it was a stable home. And you both? have two very defining moments in your childhood that are specific to a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today. And Matthew, you talked about your parents and growing up. I know they were deeply religious. And the conversation you had with your mom when you told her that you were gay. Can you tell me about what you said and what followed from there? Well, yeah. And, and I just want to clarify, it was my mom who was deeply religious. Uh, the reason my parents separated and got divorced when I was 11 years old is for that very reason. My father was not as deeply religious and he wasn't, that wasn't his path and it caused a lot of problems. So that is why they divorced. And my father was gone when that conversation you, you referenced just now came up. And it was when I was 13 years old. So that wonderful childhood and the reason I wanted to express how great it was was because this is the actual stark difference. This is a very contrast to that that wonderful childhood and that, that my parents were friends. And as a young kid, I just knew I I just knew I was gay. I mean, my brother and I went to San Francisco. We were both in the San Francisco ballet. So that's how I knew and that's how I was able to identify. 
because it was kind of all around. But what happened was, is that I was being terrorized at school. I was being horrifically bullied. Actually, the one of the main sort of perpetrators of that was my older brother. And so I was terrified to tell anybody. And I had stopped going to school. I would walk to school and I would sit out front. I remember I had six siblings that all went to the same school, but nobody said anything about me not being in, in my classroom. Um, eventually, they called my mom and asked her why I was not attending school for almost a week. And she did not know that. And when she asked me, you know, why I wasn't attending school, I said, because they're picking on me, they're bullying me, they're doing all these terrible things. I did not say it was my brother. I just said they. And she said, well, I don't understand. Why, why would they do this to you? And I said to her, well, my exact words were, duh because I'm gay, why do you think? And the look that came over her face, it, it was something I, would, I wouldn't have expected in all those years of this great mom who loved her children and played with her, you know, and did all that stuff. And she, I cannot tell you word for word after that comment, I will tell you the moment that it came to in that there was two incidents. This is the first one where she says, you cannot live in this house and you will not live under my roof if that is who you are. And she physically had pushed me out, grabbed my back of my shirt and took me to the front door and pushed me out the front door. And I thought, okay, she's just proving a point. And well, she never came back to the door. And so I just grabbed the backpack that I had and I went to San Francisco. And I thought this will only last like a day or two. And uh, unfortunately it lasted considerably longer. So you leave the house and you're essentially homeless on the streets at this point. I am homeless. And I was picked up two nights later by the police, obviously a 13-year-old boy wandering the streets of San Francisco. They picked me up. She had them bring me to a therapist's office in the small town that we were in. And she went kind of crazy again. And she kept saying, you know, no child of mine is this. It is evil. And uh, I didn't raise you this way. I did not give birth to this evil. And you take it back. And I said, I'm not taking it back. It's who I am. And I hope it's okay. I mean, I don't want to really cuss on your show. No, that, have you, you listen, people cuss all the time. Yeah. Go for it, yeah. So we got into sort of this heated argument where I was stubborn. I'm like, no, I'm not taking this back. She raised her hand and she hit me so hard that I literally went from the room where I was standing to against the wall across the room. And she said, fuck you, little faggot. And she walks out of the office and the police officer and the therapist console her as I'm laying there on the floor. And I realized then that nobody was going to help. No one was going to come to me. And this really sets up a series of events in my life that nobody was going to help me. Nobody was going to console me. I did nothing wrong. And so with that, I climbed out the window of the office. <laughs> this is a little resourceful here. And took the train tracks, followed them down to where the BART was and got on BART, went back to San Francisco. And that was the last time I ever saw my mom. Tim, you also had a moment that was incredibly defining in your life, specific and your views on race and difference. When you were a child, can you share with me the story of what happened to your brother? Yes. Well, my brother, for me, was my primary positive male role model in my life because my father was working all the time work he'd get home sit in front of the tv and there wasn't a whole lot of engagement 
So my brother was my hero in a lot of ways. And when I was about, say, 10 or 11 years old, my brother was shot in the heart. He wasn't killed, thankfully, but there was an African-American man who shot him. And from that point forward, my perception of, of people of color was that they wanted to kill me. They tried to kill my brother. And whenever I thought of, especially uh, African-American, I, it was fear-based. So I, I overgeneralized. I, I took one small family trauma, wasn't even a personal trauma, but a family trauma of an individual who shot my brother and applied that negativity to an entire group of people for many, many years. So there's this traumatic family event, the shooting of your brother, and you start to get very into the punk scene. And within the punk scene is sort of a micro group of Nazi punks, if you will. What is your life at this time? What does that look like? What are you guys doing on the weekends? What are you talking about? What is it at that time and place, your group of friends, what does it mean to be a part of that punk scene? For me, it was as if I had found my tribe. I did not feel that I had anything in common with the middle class kids in my in my neighborhood. I would go into Los Angeles City and we were drinking, we were partying, we were involved with a high level of violence, I think for the most part, and especially for me, I was angry. I was angry at the world. It didn't ma matter who it was. I was angry at them. I didn't like the middle class people, the cheerleaders, the the jocks, that sort of thing. And I was, I just didn't feel part of. However, when I was around other punk rockers, uh, we were all one. I mean, it was like uh, very, very violent. It is, it is hard to explain how violent it was. The level of violence was so great that people stopped showing up at concerts. And the people who would show up were the people who were probably more prone to violent activities. So what type of violence happens at a concert? So it's a Saturday night. Everyone's there. What is the violence you're speaking to? It could be you know, guys from Venice versus guys from Huntington Beach versus people from the Valley versus people from the Inland Empire. You know, back in those days, we had something called the Slam Dance. And it's nothing like today. I mean, it lo looks violent to some people from the outside looking in. Today, you have the people who do the mosh pit and things like that. And it was it was 10 times more violent than the mosh pits of today. If you fell down, for example, in the slam pit, you couldn't hold your own and you were reprimanded, sometimes physically, sometimes mentally, sometimes you would get ostracized for the rest of the night or a week or, oh, did you see Tim? He fell down in the slam pit. He can't hold his own. So it was very violent. And so at this point in your life, what are your opinions, or your feelings when it comes to 
people that are different than you, people that are black, people that are gay? For me, anybody who didn't, you know, especially when I started to get involved with organized hate groups, anybody who did not think the way that I thought, even if they happened to be white folks, they were the enemy, which meant that they were fair game, which meant that enacting violent on those individuals or a particular individual was justified. And Matthew, you have been kicked out of your home. You're now homeless, living on the streets. I want to get to the night of the beating, the first time that you two encountered each other. But if you can quickly let us know during this time, what is your day-to-day life? Some crazy teenager. (laughs) I was 13 years old. They were, I don't know, 17, 18, suggested going down to Los Angeles because, you know, could probably become an actor or movie, whatever it was, movie star rich, you know, it's paved with gold. It's like the land of opportunity. So jumped in the car, came down to Los Angeles and got left there actually by that friend. Just left on a corner and never came back and had all my stuff with him. So, which wasn't very much, but it was still my stuff. And what I had learned in San Francisco to survive continued in Los Angeles. And as tragic as it may sound, it's, it still goes on today, which is I was a street hustler. I don't want to say that I was fortunate in any way or make it sound positive, but I feel blessed that I did not end up in the sex trafficking part of that that was going on in, in the underbelly of Los Angeles. I just was out there hustling, trying to make money so I could eat. And that was really what was going on every day. I had to do that every single day. And what is a street hustler? What what are you doing and how does it all work? Prostitute, just getting in and out of cars, performing sex acts for money. And um, you know, it's 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 an awful, awful, awful way of life. And um, but you don't think of that then. You think of it as the only way to survive at that age out there. And you had friends, if you want to call them that, that were doing the same thing. So you're a teenage boy, homeless, living on the streets as a prostitute to feed yourself and provide for yourself or a hustler. What do you remember about the night that you were the victim of a beating that almost took your life? So I was just sitting in this hamburger stand and I remember just sitting there and they had video games, you know, back in the day when the video games were the size of monolith, like Pac-Man and Centipede and Asteroid something. And I would be playing the video games or eating. But at, that, there, at the time that this begins to take place, I'm just sitting there, actually, with some of my friends. When, you know, you could hear this ruckus. And it's kind of like this strange thing when I tell it this way. From my perception is there was just a group of guys. You could hear them sort of across the street just being very boisterous and loud and obnoxious. You know, it was just sort of annoying. But we didn't move. We didn't get up and leave because it wasn't the first time that we'd heard that or seen them or they had been in the area. So it's something you get used to. But it wasn't until one of them yelled, look, there's the faggots, let's get them. And then we sort of can't, you could, were alert, like, oh, fuck, <laughs> this is not going to end well. And so we had gotten up to run and to take off. And one of the ways, and was how we would get away from the cops, believe it or not, is to go through the alley, down to the end of the alley, back up the street and into the park across the street, which is where I was living. 
And it was a it was a sure path to get away from the police and they could never figure it out because we were tiny little kids. So it was an instinct run. And I made it into the alley, but they were bigger and faster. What I remember is I know that there was somebody else that they had split off and they were sort of going after that one as well and me at the same time. And what I what I clearly remember is not so much the physical pain, but I can remember sort of the punches and the kicking and falling to the ground. As Tim had mentioned about the mosh pit, I just remember going to the ground and then feeling dehumanized that I'm on the ground. Now they have me. I'm curled in a ball. Some of them have razor blades, not, you know, they have just the corners of the razor blades glued onto their boots. You know, they're using those boots to kick at me while I'm on the ground, which is also cutting me open. And it just felt relentless. And I cannot tell you how long the attack took or how long they were there doing that. You know, it could have been a couple of minutes. I don't know. But I do remember that the other friend of mine somehow slipped and got away. So the rest of the guys had joined the group that was on me. And in that group that had joined was Tim. I just remember Tim's boot going into my forehead. And you're 13. The last thing I remember is that boot being forced and, you know, that, that really violent kick to the forehead and I was knocked out. And that's really what I remember up to that point. And Tim, how old are you at the time of this fateful night? I was 17 years old. You're 17 years old. And what do you remember about that experience and the details surrounding it? Well, that particular evening, we had gone to a nightclub. The nightclub had been shut down because there was a stabbing of one of the bouncers. So we were already sort of in a heightened level of anger. And on the way to Okie Dogs, which was the name of the place where the attack happened, we had stopped several times to, you know, we assaulted a few people on the way there. If somebody looked at us the wrong way or if we just on the whim felt that we wanted to get out of the car and beat somebody up, that's pretty much how we operated. When we first approached Okie Dogs, there was probably, I don't know, 10, maybe 12 of us. And we were on our way across the street and somebody had said, hey, look, you know, there's the there's the homos or there's the fags. We had went in two separate directions in front of the venue and there's an alley behind and there's a parking lot that also leads into the alley. And I was Matthew had mentioned uh, there was a friend of his that was also with him. And that's who I was initially fighting with um and there was punches thrown and he was able to stay on his feet and he threw a few punches and he ran off down the alley as matthew mentioned and when i turned to my right i saw that somebody was on the on the floor and there was people around him kicking him but he was still moving and they were still kicking him and i ran up and I believe I said, what's wrong with you? You know, get the job done sort of thing. And uh, I kicked Matthew in the forehead and he was unconscious. And, and after that, there was also 
with our group, there was a couple females and one particular girl started screaming at us. In fact, I think she was screaming during the attack, telling us to stop. And she said, I think you killed him. I think you killed him. And we told her to shut up. And then we started to look at each other like, oh my God, you know, maybe, maybe we did. And we got in our cars and we, we left, we left the area. We dispersed in, in several different directions and went back home to the nice leafy suburbs where the birds are singing and really for the most part never even spoke of it these sort of things when you're involved with these sort of things you just you don't talk about them Matthew what is your first memory or recollection of waking up that night you know the first thing I can tell you that I remember is being covered in blood and not aware of how severe or not the injuries were, but I do remember a considerable amount of blood. And I really wish I could say, oh, I remember the excruciating pain. I'm sure that was part of it. I don't recollect that today. I'm sure that was part of it, but I do remember that was my very first thing. And along with that also was that I was alone. The hamburger stand had cleared out and there was nobody there. You know, this is a very important part of this night is that nobody was there to console, to offer assistance. And later I realized as I laid there that nobody called 911 because there was no ambulance, there was no police cars. So that feeling of just, it was just so as if nobody cared. Again, nobody cared, just like the night with my mom. No one cared enough about this child's life to step in. So I went back to the park, to the corner where I had been living for almost a year at this point. And I just basically said, either let me die here now. It's just, I don't want to survive. And those were, the, those were those first memories and those first moments after the attack. And I did. I walked back covered in blood, gaping wounds, and sat back in the park. I know you said as you got older after your teenage years, became a white supremacist. And I'm really interested in and in how that happened, sort of the road to that place and space in your life. And you also had a baby and you fell in love. So you were now a father to a young son. So what can you tell me about that time in your life, what your core belief systems were and also specifically what you were teaching and modeling for your young son. Hmm. So for me, as I stated earlier, most of the people my age or my graduating class group were getting their lives together. And I, for whatever reason, didn't feel that I was capable of adulting, I guess. And got involved with the far right, initially, I mean, first of all, people need to understand that as far as recruitment and, and things like that are concerned, nobody recruited me. I recruited myself, but I started to see white power skinheads at concerts and whatnot, and I had attempted to approach them on, on numerous occasions, and for whatever reason, they just weren't responsive. So I took it upon myself to drive two hours to San Diego area 
and I approached the national leader of a group called the White Aaron Resistance. And I called him up on the phone and I told him who I was and, and told him that I wanted to be involved. And he invited me into his home and gave me nothing but positive affirmations, which was something that I wasn't used to. It was something that I wasn't necessarily getting from home because I was drinking, I was partying, I had all these weird hairdos, I wasn't going to school on a regular basis, I was always getting in fights. So it had gotten to the point to where my my parents were very standoffish. They put up with me to a certain degree, but for the most part, I pretty much did whatever I wanted. And uh, the leader of White Aaron Resistance told me that I you know, was a fine specimen of an Aryan warrior and, and things like that, positive affirmations. And I ate it up. And it was through that initial meeting with the national leader of the White Aaron Resistance that I was given a card. And I called the people, the number on the card, and it was a local group of skinheads. And I went to one of their gatherings, and there was beer drinking, and there was violence. And, of course, me being new to this crowd, I felt that I needed to, to prove myself. So I was the one who initiated many violent uh, confrontations that evening. And for the next 10, 15 years, I was up to my eyebrows in in this sort of lifestyle. You know, every part of my existence, every fiber of my being at that time, as far as I can tell, uh, was had something to do with race, far-right politics, violence. I did actually end up abstaining from all mind-altering substances, including alcohol. And I believe that that was instrumental in my process of disengagement from that lifestyle. I also believe that being a father and realizing that I was not modeling the best behavior for a young child, I started to look for ways out. And a lot of people assume that it's, you know, typical gang culture where you get jumped in, you get jumped out. And there was some of that, but for the most part, people can leave without having to go through that if they leave under certain circumstances. And my ticket to getting out of that lifestyle, I didn't know it at the time, but there was something, you know, compelling me to move further away from that sort of lifestyle was that I was going to take my child and my family and move out of state away from Los Angeles County. Now, by this time, when I talk about my son modeling certain behaviors, he knew all the buzzwords, he knew all the racial epithets, and he's a very young child, probably one and a half, two years old, and he's modeling this behavior. I was in the grocery store with him. He ended up using a racial epithet towards an African-American man. And the shoppers were not very happy with that and, and vocalized what they thought of me and how dare I let a child do that sort of thing. And my son, this is sort of shocking. It was sort of an... What did he say? He said, when I started to get 
yelled at and criticized for my son using the N-word in the grocery store, he looked up at me and asked me, aren't you going to beat them up, daddy? And these are, you know, shoppers in the suburbs in a grocery store, which was shocking to me that he would, you know, feel that that was appropriate. Uh, You know, maybe I didn't realize to what level I was modeling that negative behavior. You know, I had never beaten anybody up in front of him or or anything like that. But uh, yeah, that was a that was a big one. So I ended up moving out of Southern California, and my explanation to my associates at that time was I wanted to raise my family in a all white area, and I moved out of state. And that was uh, the beginnings of the end of that sort of uh, being involved with that sort of uh, lifestyle. However, I did struggle for many years. I worked in the construction industry and I found myself in several different instances where my enemy, my perceived enemy, the other, treated me with kindness and respect and compassion. And on several occasions, I was had moments of clarity, one, one of which has had a very lasting effect on my life, was uh, I met a, a young lady. She had a bit of a southern twang. She had red hair. We went on a date, and we went on another date. And it got to the point where she, I guess because it was progressing, and getting more serious, she asked me, she said, I hope you know, I happen to be Jewish. Do you have a problem with that? And if that's not getting out of one's comfort zone, I don't know what else is. Ironically, we've been married for over 20 years, and that's definitely getting out of one's comfort zone. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a radical personal transformation. And it's incredible that you did it. That moment at the grocery store, you saw that you could no longer walk this path. It's incredible and brave. And I imagine was not easy and quick, as you said. But you do as part of this journey of reckoning, redemption, if you want to call it, end up at the Museum of Tolerance here in LA, which is where you and Matthew met for the first time. As Tim has completely transformed his life, Matthew, in parallel, you have transformed yours. You are no longer homeless in the streets, but you are now a professional and in management at Museum of Tolerance, beautiful museum here in Los Angeles. So how do you go from homeless teenage hustler in the streets of LA to a management position in a museum that's known around the world. <laughs> I know, right? Well, it didn't, well, yeah, it was sort of a journey there, but um, I actually was on the streets for four and a half years is the total time, uh, not in shelters, but just living in that park and remarkably surviving. It was one day that a person had come into the park, sat down, had uh, offered a, I think it was a burger or something and asked me what was going on. And it was like, like, why am I here? Like, why are you in this park? Why are you homeless? And so it was that first moment that I felt like somebody actually cared to listen and to hear and saw me. And I didn't feel invisible. 
And he just says, you know, I, I have a place. You can you can share it with me. You can have your room. I have to make sure that you get a job. Um, it'd be great if you went back to school. And I really don't want you to steal from me. So I did two of those things. I uh, got a job and I didn't steal from him. But I never actually had formal schooling after the seventh grade, which makes running the museum a little more interesting. But the one thing I did do is I ended up becoming a hair colorist. And I was a hair colorist for 20 years in Beverly Hills with a very A-list clientele, some very notable celebrities. Um, and it was really the death of Matthew Shepard, the absolute brutal murder of him that got me to thinking that this, for me, this is just for me, my vapid life of traveling the world and spending money and not having any substance to show for it is how I crossed paths with the Museum of Tolerance. It was actually a client of mine who had volunteered there. And so I went and I started out as a volunteer, which is when I first met Tim, before I was managing it. So the first meeting with Tim was because I wanted to, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. I just, I was customizing a tour for a, a, a school group. So they wanted the tour to be about the dangers of white supremacy, but nothing else. And I didn't think that was right. So I said, well, I know we have a speaker. So why don't we do the tour? And then Tim can speak to your group. So I contacted Tim, asked him to come in, and if it was okay, he would. And he did. And he spoke to the school group. So in talking to Tim about that school group, uh, we trailed off in that conversation about our lives. I did not physically recognize Tim. And the school group was about eight months after I'd been volunteering at the museum. So I knew of Tim, and Tim had been around. We had talked, small talk here and there. So I never really um, physically put it two and two together. In the conversation about the school group, I was just asking Tim normal questions like you're asking him today. You know, what was it like? You know, how did you get into white supremacy? Where did that begin for you? Where did you hang out? And in that conversation, in those questions, in the back and forth, is how we slowly came to realize that we had met in that alley that night. What moment did you realize? That it was, in fact, Tim. So uh, I believe I was asking a question about where he hung out. And if I can recall, the answer was, well, he said he hung out at Okie Dogs or he hung out in Hollywood. There was clubs in there. One of his places he would go to was Okie Dogs. And I said, oh, I, and this is before I realized who it was. I said, oh, I used to hang out there too. And one of us had said, I think it was Tim said, yeah, it got really violent there for me one night. I think that's what Tim said. And then I said, well, what do you remember? And he said, I think I killed somebody. And I'm not sure if I said this or if I just thought it in my head, and maybe Tim can clarify, but I think I had said, you know who you're sitting across from. And that was, so that's what I remember. And then I remember walking away. It was that moment that I walked away when he said, I knew it before you did, I think was Tim's answer. And then I said, um, I don't even know if I said I have to go or maybe I did. And I just, I just left. I left. Tim, what do you remember about the conversation? It was a very awkward moment. You know, here we were, we were, for all intents and purposes, we were colleagues and we were talking about how we could make changes and how could we could help this school group. It was a good two weeks before I saw Matthew again, maybe even a month. And during that time, I was flooded with all kinds of emotions, trying to minimize my part, trying to justify my actions. However, the way that I was attempting and still to this day attempt to 
present myself and to live my life is that when I am at fault, that I admit it and I own up to it. So when we had met again before that particular school group, that's when I chose to apologize to Matthew. Matthew, I heard in in the documentary they made about you guys that I found interesting is that you knew, you know, in this in the or these early few weeks that Tim wanted your forgiveness. You could tell that, and that you were willfully holding that back, realizing in fact that now you were in the position of power, not him. Well, yeah. The second time of the conversation continues is when he speaks for the, the school group that actually initialized the conversation between he and I. At the end of him speaking to them, I was standing at the door because I was, you know, their, their guide, and he apologized. And my thought was, <laughs> I apologized to him. Maybe you haven't heard this version yet. My thought was, well, fuck you. <laughs> uh, how dare you? Just like, oh, so haphazardly, oh, I'm sorry that I left you for dead. So I was like, no. No, 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 no. It's not going to be that easy for you. And not wanting to make it easy on him, I wanted to talk because it's very important for me to say this. A victim cannot heal if they don't know why they were victimized. And that was, you know, for me, I could not heal. I could not move forward. And I would not accept that apology unless I knew why he did what he did. I knew why my mom did what she did. You know, I could almost understand why the people who repeatedly victimized me out there were doing what they were doing. But I wanted to know why Tim singled me out. And that's where I was withholding the acknowledgement of his apology. And by doing that, it actually, without me realizing it, is what sparked that journey to ultimately forgiving him. And what was the answer to that question, Tim? I attacked him because I was angry. I attacked him because I dehumanized him. And I attacked him because I was a follower. I mean, you know, uh, we we could go into you know, childhood trauma, we could go into a lot of things, but that's the short version. Got it. No, I think that's beautifully put. Yeah. And for me, it was, it was satisfying on a, on a few levels because the healing was, it wasn't necessarily, and I think it's important because I think the media loves to, uh, not you, Kimmy, mm-hmm. the, the media loves to find a, a hook mm-hmm. and they sink their teeth into it and then they sensationalize it. The thing that is very important about what Tim just said, and he had said it back then, was so it wasn't necessarily because I was gay that Tim attacked me. It was a crime of opportunity and a motivation through hate and anger for everything else. And the reason that's important for me to hear is because as I move through the journey of forgiving Tim, becoming stronger, and Tim and I speaking together, I am able to not only speak to the LGBTQ community, but it's all communities and victims who have been are part, you know, part of a very random act of violence and victimization. And, and it's so that's how, why that answer is so important to me. So that's the beginning of the path of forgiveness and reconciling and, and building a relationship. What does it take to truly build a, a friendship and a partnership? You guys share your story around the country together. How do you build that, that trust and what did that process entail? To me, it seemed like an incredible opportunity to heal from something that had been so horrible in my life. 
And I, I think the other thing that's important to sort of tell in the story is, is that Tim and I had gotten to know each other for over eight months before realizing that we had met in that alley. So I wouldn't have said that we had this great friendship prior, but I had a very deep respect for who Tim was. And now I have to go back and sort of put that on hold and go back to the alley and the person that was in that alley and work on healing myself and healing that moment. And that took a very long time. And yes, Tim and I were speaking around the world before I had fully and completely forgiven him. And it was a long journey, a lot of soul searching. It was, it was, I don't know that I had like a step guide that I could print out and say, this is exactly what I did. And it took a very long time. One, to actually truly call Tim a friend and two, to fully and completely say that, yes, I have absolutely forgiven Tim. We might annoy each other, but that's different. I don't know. You know, but yes, I've truly forgiven Tim and I've been able to confidently say that the respect I had for Tim when I had first met him prior to knowing that we had met before, I have for him now again and a greater respect even after all, you know, as the years go on. Because he has a willingness to participate in these interviews, which takes him back to a night that he had to heal from and move forward from. But that's his side of the story to find his confidence. And I and I can only imagine, I know this sounds funny as being the victim. I can only imagine how difficult that is to go back and be retread through an incident that was so that you participated in that was so horrible. But I have been able to fully forgive Tim. And I, I apologize I don't have a step for step by step guide on how I do it. I know that one, there's two things that that sort of I know that I had reached that point. And one of them is, is that if you saw us speak together physically in the very beginning, we would stand on opposite sides of the stage. And as time has gone on, and I'm sure Tim will agree with me that we we stand closer together on that stage. We don't we don't separate so far away. And the other thing is is that Tim had gotten to know my partner at the time. They had become good friends. They had a few things in common. And about eight years into the one Tim and I work and then Tim's friendship with Mike is that Mike passed away. But Mike was Tim's friend. And I love telling this part of the story. Tim came there to be with me when Mike was nearing the end. And I remember him saying goodbye to his friend. And I was saying goodbye to my partner. And that's such an incredibly remarkable moment from lying half dead in an alley at the hands of these men. And then having one of those men hold the hand of my partner to say goodbye. And that to me is what healing and true forgiveness looks like. That is beautiful. Thank you. Tim, have you forgiven yourself? What has your process been of forgiveness? When I talk about myself, I often talk in third person because it's the best way to deal with it for me because I don't identify with with that 17-year-old kid. And I don't identify with that, you know, racist thug either. For many, many years, I was, even through my involvement with drinking and, and partying and being involved with violence, I was distracting myself from my inadequacies, my fears, I guess. And I have, for the most part, come to face most of those. I think a good word or an explanation for it would be that I am emotionally mature, more emotionally mature. And I assume that also comes with age as well. Tim, as we are having this conversation today, it is just weeks after 
millions of people poured into the streets in an outcry of racial injustice in this country. And it is clear that we must radically transform and evolve as people and as a country. And you are the embodiment of that, Tim. You really are, your your transformation and your shift. So I wonder, and I know a lot of media around the country and the world has been reaching out to you for that very reason, looking for answers for somebody who lives change every day. What do you think is our collective path out of racial division and injustice in this country? Are there one or two things that you think are critical for us as a country to do? Well, I'm a bit pessimistic, but I'm also hopeful. But I do believe that economics plays a major role. Economic equality plays a major role. You know, I I have to admit that I often sound very pessimistic when I when I say I don't believe that there will ever be a perfect world where there's no racial tension, where there's no injustices. And I think historically that's been true. And I don't think the world is going to change anytime soon. However, when dealing with violent extremism, uh, political extremism, it's very easy for us as individuals to look at a group of people or an individual and say, that's my enemy. And there's way too much of that going on. Now, I, I am involved with some groups of people where we talk. We don't scream at one another and we don't blame each other. We hear each other and you can't hear the other side or the other if you're screaming. And I, I think for me, it starts with me. It doesn't start with them. It starts with me, whoever them are, whoever they are. Um, once we get okay with us and start treating ourselves with respect, then we can treat others with mutual respect. Matthew, what is the thing you admire most about Tim? I deeply admire and have an incredible respect for, first, Tim acknowledging and taking accountability for the the way his life was when he was younger and the things that he was involved in and taking the responsibility and then having the strength to change and to walk away from that and then to forgive himself. And also the second thing that I have a great respect, as I had said earlier, because I don't think I would be able to do it. I really don't. And that is that he is constantly and always willing to speak with me when possible, knowing that the person interviewing us or the venue that we're speaking at is going to play the film or take him back to that alley. And he gets, he has to relive that. And I deeply respect that. And I think maybe in the beginning, I viewed it as a little bit of a punishment, but now I don't. I I don't know if he knows that, but I stand on stage. I feel uncomfortable that he has to go back to the alley and then discuss it. And I have a great deal of respect for the amount of strength and courage it takes for him to do that. And Tim, what do you admire most about Matthew? He's very resilient, for one. If he wasn't resilient, he wouldn't still be with us today. I don't think either of us would, quite frankly. He's a fighter. And he is a human being, and he has a heart. And I love him like a brother. What do you hope that people take away from your story? 
for me, it, you know, so I always say that, well, forgiveness and healing is a journey that as individual as the person who decides to embark on it. But what, you know, we can't direct how someone's going to feel. We can't direct somebody to change. My hope when they're listening to the story or the podcast or hearing Tim and I is that they hear that they hear, they may hear the story, but to leave the body of the story and hear what the two, what we're both saying, we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about healing, deep respect and gratitude for one another as people, the possibility that change for that person exists if they so willingly choose to do the work to achieve it, the possibility to heal completely and to leave behind the prison that you have built yourself into because of your fears of something that may have happened in your life. I'm talking to the victims. The possibility exists in the same way if you are willing to do the work and challenge yourself to do the work it takes to achieve what Tim and I have achieved both individually and collectively. And Tim, what do you hope people take away? Well, I think it's important that we are responsible and take responsibility for our actions. And I mirror everything that Matthew said. I think it is extremely important. Change does not happen without work. It takes hard work, sometimes for a very long time. And if we do work towards a better future and a better understanding of one another, there is hope. Thank you, Tim and Matthew. This was incredible. I am so grateful to you both for your trust in me and helping to help share your story. And I'm really excited for everyone to listen to this conversation. So thank you. Thank you very much. Very welcome. Thank you. So we end with a little something called rapid fire. So I, uh, here, here we Uh-oh. go. <laughs> so I'm going to say something and uh, him, you go first. And then Matthew, you can go after. All right. Oh my God. <laughs> Favorite way to spend a Friday night. Meditating. My dog. Favorite song. A blues song. King B by... I don't even know his name. Blues music. I just love good blues or I'm just going to shut up. Matthew. (laughs) Oh, this is easy. Proud Mary, Tina Turner. (laughs) Oh, Lord. I can even do the dance. That's how gay I am. I'm kidding. thing I am most proud of. My son. (laughs) Ah, that's hard. (laughs) I will say my resiliency. Biggest pet peeve. Good Lord. Bad drivers. I was going to say the same thing, and I never used to be that way until I became a courier. Now people <laughs> suck when they drive. I can't. I, I'm in the car screaming. In 10 years, I hope to be. More wise than today. Matthew? I hope to, I hope to be thin and look young. <laughs> no, I hope to. I, I Actually, in 10 years, I hope not to be speaking with Tim because it, it's not necessary or needed anymore. Thank you both. This was awesome. You are awesome. I hope we can all meet in person someday post-COVID. Today's interview with Matt and Tim supports two charities. Matt chose the Freedom Writers Foundation. Their story begins in the 1990s in Long Beach. The city was ravaged by drugs, gang violence, and homicide. 
that was making its way into the hallways of the schools. In walks a young teacher, Erin Gruel. On her first day in room 203 at Wilson High School, she was told her students were unteachable. Erin has said that those high schoolers only had three things in common. They hated school, they hated her, and they hated each other. But then she helped them discover the power of telling their stories. And against all odds, all of Erin's 150 students went on to graduate, become published authors, and eventually start a worldwide movement to change the education system as we know it. Today, they are called the Freedom Writers. The Freedom Writers help educate teachers and students around the country to bring the same life-changing curriculum into their classrooms. You can find them at freedomwritersfoundation.org and check out some pictures of Erin and her many students. Tim's charity is Change Memphis. It's a multicultural nonprofit that engages in outreach, everything from food drives to seminars, counseling, anti-racism campaigns, anti-violence campaigns, and even a program called Erase the Hate Tattoos. It's a smaller organization and their website is not up yet, but we will add to our show notes when it is. I also included a link to Matt and Tim's website, hatetohope.org. That's hate, the number two, hope.org. Thank you for making the time to listen. And I cannot wait to bring you more inspiring stories in the weeks and months ahead. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening.